Peace, peace, peace. I am Dr. Philip Roundtree, and you are tuned into episode 65 of the Hashtag You Good Man podcast. Today, we'll be talking about navigating death, dying, and grief as men. As always, I'm joined by the good Canadian homie, and that's what I'm going to say now. I'm going to say you're a Canadian brother, Michael Olenek. How you been, family? I, I have no I'm no borders here, man. <laughs> I'm a no borders person. So have you applied for like Canadian citizenship? Nah, at this point, I'm going work visa to work visa. So it's just a temporary. Okay. So as long as I got the work visa, I'm good. Okay, so so how does that work? Do they give you like a specific time frame? Because I watched 90 Day Fiance, and I know they for the for the K-1 visa to get somebody over here, I think they come over and then they got 90 days to either get married or they got to leave. So uh, Okay, so I needed the work visa to enter the country. I okay. needed it to come in. And okay. then it, it was for exactly a year. It's, running out i'm not going to say when it's running out because it's being recorded right now we're 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 up against it (laughs) we're and what's the what's the prime minister name uh trudeau is it justin trudeau Trudeau, or something like that trudeau yeah yeah yeah. we don't want him coming to get you we don't want him coming (laughs) coming to get you bigger things to worry about right now word word so we're gonna have this conversation and i want to let people know the impetus for this conversation when you logged on you was like death dying and grief man and it was just like yeah yeah like this is this is where i'm at it's a especially within the last week or so so initially it started out as um it's just something that took place within the last the last few weeks or so so I've been navigating this sort of like community loss, and I'm sure you could, you'll you be able to empathize and hopefully the listeners are able to to empathize as well. And I always want to salute and shout you all out for listening and and watching, whether you're listening and watching on YouTube or whatever streaming service you're using. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. Um, but for me, it really started out as this this community loss. So here in Philadelphia, uh, a disgraced cop by the name of Mark Dial murdered 27 year old eddie irizari this happened two weeks ago here in philadelphia uh if you follow me on socials phil underscore roundtree i've posted about it on every platform that i'm on whether it's facebook instagram uh tiktok youtube i've literally posted it everywhere i think in the when we talk about state sanctioned murders that have taken place since i've been on social media this is the one that that's hit home most. And I, and I'm not sure why, and hopefully we'll be able to, to unpack that and I'll have a better understanding as to why, uh, it was especially egregious due to the police commissioner. So here the police commissioner outlaw, she provided false information. She provided false information stating that Eddie lunged at the officers after being pulled over. And then details came out and video came out. And so not only did Eddie not lunge at the officers with knives, Eddie not, never got out the motherfucking car. The video shows, again, this coward, Mark Dial. Now, Eddie what, did go down the, a one-way street, which I've done. I've done that down Temple University where it's just one way after one way. And it's just like, oh, shit. Now you hoping like, OK, let me get to the end of the one way so I can so I can then get back on the right path. But it, it never I never was stopped by the police and it never ended up with my murder. Hence the reason why what I'm here today. 
so what we see in the video is that Eddie goes down this one-way street. Now, they try to say that he was driving erratic. Of course they're going to say that, right? Of course they're going to say that. So we see him come down the street. We see him stop. We see him back up. We then see the car driven by the coward Mark Dial, who has since been suspended because he's not, uh, he, he's not, um, he's not obliging his, his superiors by participating in the ongoing investigation. So they're calling it insubordination. We see him drive up. We see the, the, the vehicle stop. We see him get out. We see him shoot and kill Eddie Irizarry while he's still sitting in his car with the door closed. And when I watched that, I said, wait, and this is before I saw it being reported in the news about what had taken place and with regards to the video, I said, damn, that was kind of fast. And I replayed it and I counted and it was, he parked one, two, three, four, five. And Eddie was murdered. And so in watching that in watching that video, I ingested that trauma. Now, what I did with that, that trauma that I had just ingested, I used it to promote Eddie's story and what had taken place and to call out the, the Philadelphia Police Department, to call out um, public officials here in Philadelphia who I haven't seen say a word with regards to it, maybe because it's election season coming up, right? Who knows? But all I know is, is that it had an impact on me. And so I felt the tension, I felt unsettled, I felt helplessness, I felt anger, I felt sadness, all these characteristics of grief that accompany death, especially state-sanctioned murders. And so the, the second reason I wanted to have this conversation was it, it was it was wild. One day last week, I met with a sister, well, I met a sister who shared the same birthday with my, my brother who has now been an ancestor for the last 22 years. Later that day, his first love messaged me on TikTok and she told me, she said, Phil, I'm, I'm so proud of you. And I, I immediately knew it was her when I saw the name Laura. I was just like, yeah, I know who you are, right? You took me to see Dennis the Menace when I was eight. Haven't seen her in the last and heard from her in the last 30 some odd years. Right. Because my brother went on to go and date other people. She went on to go become a nurse and, and live her dreams. But with that, it had me reflecting. It, it had me feeling all the feels and feeling all the emotions related to my brother. And so although I'm not necessarily grieving his death, I know I'll be exper experiencing grief until my last breath. And so these two situations had me consider for the first time in a while just how men understand death, dying, and grief. Hence the reason why, I, again, I wanted to have this conversation. And so for you, Mike, I want to start it off by saying, by asking, what's your experience and understanding of death, dying, and grief? Well, <clears throat> so first on the, uh, I saw the video of the state-sanctioned murder, hmm. and I too thought, that was really fast, really fast. And you could see the fear in the officer. That officer had no confidence, like ran away after firing, ran away, like, ran away. <laughs> and I just, 
what I felt in that moment was just this deep hurt for like the system that we live in, that this kind of a situation can happen on such a consistent basis in the US, mm. that we continue to put people who don't have the ability to be calm in situations of crisis with weapons, with weapons. And yeah, it's, it's heavy. Um, I, I have feelings about cops. I have feelings about all of that. Uh, like we had a whole movement there for a little bit where we we're talking about defund the police that got crushed real fast. <laughs> no one's talking about defund the police anymore. No, not, at, not at all. Not at all. Nobody's talking about that. No, we're talking about like, we're basically back in the good old days of like law and order. They're just not saying that, but it's that that's what we're pushing towards. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, a, it's uh, like you always say, state, state's sake and shame murder. That's what that is. There's no other yeah. way of looking at it. As far as like, like processing grief and death and dying. Um, for me personally, I feel pretty okay with death and that like that kind of loss. Hmm. Um, I feel like I sit with it. Well, I understand it, but there's like, there's like death of the spirit. I'm going to try to tie this together with something that I experienced over the last week where, so, uh, Phil, you know, I've brought psychedelics into my life, right? And, uh, (laughs) I took a macro dose of mushrooms last week three and a half grams and it was possibly the most healing experience of my life um i'm talking real inner child work i really sat with my family dynamic i sat with the lack of care i received like that aspect of death not being able to access who i was because of like trauma right Hmm. and i'm talking at the end of the night i weeped for 25 minutes weeped Cause I wow. really felt it finally. Yeah. Like I felt that I felt that loss. Right. And then we're talking about death. The re- thing that's hard to grapple with is loss. It feels like this thing that you can never put back together again, but that was probably the closest I've been to really sitting with grief and allowing the actual physical reaction to grief to really mm. happen. Cause I don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I feel that. So when I when I think about my brother specifically, I think the purest moment that I where I, I I was grieving and I just allowed myself to experience all the feels, all the emotions, was when my mother first told me when she came down the stairs and said, "Phil, Bobby died," and all those emotions came pouring out. I, I didn't think about how I might look. I w- and I was 17 at the time. I didn't care about how I would look. Um, I was in a safe space with my mother. And so the tears just came out. But that was it, right? That hour, that two hour, after learning that he had died. Because shortly, shortly thereafter, later that evening, I went down South Street in Philly, and I always talk about it. I got a rest in peace Bobby tattoo on my arm because I that's what I was I've been conditioned to believe is what you do when 
you experience loss, especially as a especially as a black man. So I went down South Street with my homegirl Amy, who had a, a really high pitched voice like Michelet. For those of you who are familiar with the singer Michelet, we went down there. I got the tattoo, and it was just like, oh, okay, everything is supposed to be a hunky dory at this point. I went to school that Monday, and what happened? I got suspended for for cussing out the computer teacher. I talk about this in the TED talk, the TEDx talk that I did, because for some reason. Uh, and not for necessarily for some reason, because we, we recognize how the conversation or the lack thereof that we have in this country, in the black community, when it comes to death, dying and grief, it's not one. You give it to Jesus. They're in a better place now. But nobody says, OK, you're don't go to school. Mm. Because it's always supposed to be business as usual. And this isn't just endemic to black folk. This is just endemic. You all again, we have this conversation about producing, producing, producing. You always have to produce. So for me at 17 was going, getting this tattoo. Why? Because I, I, I didn't drink at the time. So it wasn't pouring out liquor for my fallen homies, you know, for my fallen brother. It was to go to school and try to get this education, which in, in, in one hand is noble. The fact that I had the ability to get up, to go and attempt to achieve, which is when we talk about men and how they cope with death, we throw what we have, we, we can become workaholics. But for me, I took this pain, I took this grief and went to school, but I hadn't processed it because in what that manifested in me cursing out the computer teacher for no reason. Right now, sub in subsequent years after that, I was able to see Miss Williams and she understood and we hugged and it was just it was love. But me processing his loss was through anger and rage. And I didn't just stop there at that point. That's how I would I would use that to anger and rage to navigate any time I experience extreme discomfort, extreme pain, extreme loss. We know that with men and we talk about this idea of depression, it's not necessarily about laying in bed for four or five days on end because you experience the death. No, it's it's anger. It's you're going through that that grieving process. So when you when we bring up this idea of of just navigating and the difficulties, because like like any and everything, these are learned behaviors. These are learned characteristics. My daughter, who you heard on the phone, <laughs> you know, asking me to get her some McDonald's and say, please, please, please. She hasn't experienced death yet. Maybe from an, a, a small way with when her fish died. Right. But she hasn't experienced death and loss and full transparency. I haven't attempted to prepare her for for what needs to take place when loss happens, because that's just not necessarily what we do as as a society. So it's it, it, it just brings up, you know, when you talk about just grieving and and bringing up those emotions, I'm sure it's still. It's still pain. It's still hurt, as I said. I, I may not be gr actively grieving, but I'll be navigating this grief when it comes to my brother for the rest of my life. And it may come up in moments when I when I did defended my dissertation. It came up. I had sat and wrote this entire dissertation with 20 pages, 15, 20 pages dedicated to him. And I was cool as a fan. Cognitively, I was able to understand it. Listen, you know what? Unfortunately, he died from from opioid use, Xanax, Percocets, codeine, something that's that's only getting now now being talked about 
because why wow, white folk are dying from it right because what's happening in in kensington we i i don't need to watch the painkillers movie i experienced that in in 2020 and in, in, in 2001 i understand when i saw the prescription bottles where these were coming from right but ultimately, I'm gonna be navigating this, and so yeah, there is probably some stored, some stored grief in store. But for so many of us, for all of us, really, we're always going to be navigating grief as long as we're alive. Well, yeah, and you hit on this a little bit, like the way we handle death, the way we handle dying as a society, is out of sight, out of mind. Like, how do we handle? Like, I remember. <laughs> This is kind of, I remember when I was in third grade, we had hamsters, right? And they had babies. And then I proceeded to watch the mom eat the babies. And at the time, my dad was like, she's cleaning them. And I was like, that's not what's happening, right? So, but like, that's a good, like, we don't spend time discussing the prospect of death when we all know it is a part of our lives. Yeah. We don't have resources to have that conversation. And then like on the prospect of dying, I mean, I think just look at how we're just now getting into a state of really using palliative care and end of life care. Hmm. Like we used to just like prop people up for as long as possible, but now we're like, no, okay. You have a terminal illness and you want to end your life. Okay. Here, we'll, we'll set that up for you so that you can yeah. like greet your family and your friends one last time, like and make meaning. And then when you talk about the grief, yeah, I mean, I have a close friend um, who died of a heroin overdose going on 10 years ago, I want to say. But I had like, that one hurt, right? I carried his casket. I cried. I still think about him and I still feel a wound, right? And I think that's what you're getting at with your brother is that just because we've had a grieving moment doesn't mean the grief isn't going to show up again. And I think this might be kind of like something that men really struggle with is that we think it's a one and done thing. A lot of times men we're like, Oh, I did that. I'm good. I'm golden. I figured it out, but that grief's going to show up again. It's going to grab you. Um, I have, as I've aged and as I've done work on myself, I have gotten a lot better at being present with that loss. Mm. Cause I had another friend probably about a month and a half ago overdose and die and that one stung a lot too mm-hmm. but the next day after finding out about it i had that breaking point i had that point where i allowed myself to weep where i allowed myself to feel and be present with that present with that feeling and hold myself yeah i think the good thing about that is if if you can learn to be present with grief, you get a really good chance to really sit with yourself and care for yourself and allow space for yourself without the necessary support. Yes, we want support when we're dealing with death or dying, but I still think we need to refine those skills on our own too. For sure, for sure. When I, when I hear you talk about your friend and and just the difficulties, you know, they're just the just the the myriad of emotions that that come from that. When I think about me going to school that two days later. Right. And and trying to to show. Show strength. And there is a, a level of strength that is present there again, just by getting up and still pushing forward. 
But there's also a, a strength in sitting and resting and, and being present and attempting to process what you're feeling. But we use the skills that we have. Mm-hmm. We use the skills that we have. When I when I think about for me and this idea, part of going to school was part of that was protection, not only protecting myself, but also protecting my mother who had just lost her eldest son. Because she can't have two children. She can't have one child that's that's passed away and then another child who's 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 grieving beyond belief because they just lost a a, a, a intimate relationship being my brother. So I had to be, again, quote unquote, strong. I had to to protect my mother in that instance. Right. And so part of it in reflection, part of it was like, you know what? There may be a little bit of guilt if I didn't do that, if I didn't get up, when I think about friends who, you know, I've had some friends that I've, that I've lost. It's just like that, that, that idea of guilt that comes in that we all experience, but especially men and this notion that we're protectors, protectors, protectors. And now here we are, we couldn't protect this individual from dying. I couldn't protect my brother from dying. I couldn't, you couldn't necessarily protect your friend from overdosing. And part of that starts to seep in just because of how we're conditioned to be as men. Yeah, I could I could definitely see how we're taught to show up and help others, right? Put your stuff to the side, be strong, stand tall. Um, I so my the friend that just died a month and a half ago. Me and him used to talk about suicide a lot because we both have had periods of active suicidal ideation where it's just for anyone that doesn't know, like that's just like living every day. And the thought of the serious thought of wanting to kill yourself is there. It's present. It's with you. It hangs around. doesn't mean I'm sitting there actively pursuing it, but the options on the table and on the table in a serious way. And me and him used to talk about it a lot. And when I found out he passed, a big part of me hoped that it was an intentional overdose. Hmm. Like that's the conclusion I came when you're talking about like working through guilt, like that's the place I ended up. I wanted it to be intentional. I wanted him to have made the choice to be like, yeah, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. I'm tired and I want out because for some reason that felt so much better than an accidental overdose. It just felt better. (laughs) But But that's like, that's the, that's exactly what you're talking about. Like that, the mental gymnastics we do when we're handling something that's as heavy as losing somebody, especially abruptly, abrupt deaths are hard. You don't see them and then they're there and then the person's gone yeah. and you're left with all those things to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason why I chuckle is because I did the exact same thing with my brother. It was shameful to say that he died from from codeine or from Xanax or from Percocets and having sleep apnea to where he already had an irregular heartbeat. So now when he's taking these sedatives, it causes it to stop. It was shameful to tell people that. Mm. Right. Now it's okay. We're having more of a of a public discourse when it comes to and only specifically specifically opioid use because still it's still shame if you say hey somebody uses crack cocaine we still look at them a specific a certain type of way you're a crackhead right there's there we have certain certain language that we attribute to that which um again it's it's very shaming shameful 
with my brother, I used to tell people that he got shot. And I did that for the longest time because what that did was that took the responsibility out of his hands and placed it on another, probably somebody that looks like him, right? But it's a little bit more honorable to die that way as opposed to you took you took these drugs that you didn't necessarily need. You probably needed some potentially some other some other types of drugs to navigate, you know, hurt, pain, navigate mental health, depression, anxiety, what have you. But the, you took these to cope and it cost you your life. And I literally did that for for five or six years. I would just tell people that because it was it was not only easier for me to say that so people could just leave it alone, but it was it made it easier for me to process the loss to process what took place. And now I'm at a place where where people say, where I say, yeah, he died from opioid use from, you know, using whatever he was using. It's like, oh, I'm sorry for your loss. And I say, well, you know, he made decisions. He made he made choices. And it's not to 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 speak as if, you know, just blah, just a laissez-faire attitude. But I recognize when we make decisions, our decisions potentially have consequences. And he didn't necessarily think that, that his consequence was going to be to lose his life and impact so many people around him. Because I doubt that that's what he would have chose. But also, I do recognize that the decisions that we make, they impact individuals. So when I was going through my suicide ideations, it was much easier for me to ne- navigate that through the first from age 17 to age to 24 because then my daughter came. Right. And it became a lot more difficult potentially to reconcile me not being here anymore. You know what I'm saying? And so and so for that, it was, you know what? Hey, this is this is the game. And so for me, even saying it, using that type of language, it's just like, yo, you're just so callous with it. And it's just like, no, because I, I understand the hurt, the pain, the trauma and everything that comes with decision making. And that's why it informs me. It informs my own. This, this can't hurt his legacy. He was an amazing brother in moments. In some moments, he was a J.A. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was a jack off. Right. It's just just what it is. But that's what made him him. And that's what made him special to me. This this relationship that was beginning to build prior to his loss. Right. Because he was seven, eight years older than me. But when that but that hurt and and that pain, it wouldn't allow me to speak truth to power. So I so in essence, I gave it away. It wasn't until I reclaimed that power and talked about what exactly happened. It's that old Eminem line from from Eight Mile where he allows the rapper to to, to either he raps first he raps first and he says everything that the rapper is going to say about him because then once I reclaim my power it's nothing that you can say at this point right so it's no need for me to lie about how he died because I'm fine I've done that work I've reconciled that 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 loss for now because again it might be different. 15 minutes from now. And I guess the thing that's coming to my head is, is there an honorable way to die? Like, and I keep <laughs> also thinking about how death is both personal and communal, right? Yeah. It, it gets filtered through both because like I'm thinking about like June 21 till 
January 22, I pretty much wanted to kill myself every single day, right? Hmm. That was a decision that I was carrying as a burden. So I was kind of plotting my own death as an escape raft, right? It was, I don't have to feel this anymore if I do this. And traveling that, I think, was in a way a grieving process. I was in the depths of grief as like mental health stuff was coming up, going through a separation, going through a divorce. Um, You talked about your daughter. My cat, Albert's the only reason I'm alive. Hmm. I'm dead, dead serious. There was a day where in my session with my, well, and my therapist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and, and, and. um. (laughs) Ren is one of the best people that ever entered my life. Love you. Uh, But there was a therapy session where I said I was going to take Albert to stay with someone. And she paused and she said, what was that? I was like, I'm going to take Albert. He's going to stay somewhere else for the weekend. She's like, well, the thing is, is Albert's keeping you alive. So I don't like hearing that. And that moment really put me in that place of like, do I want to end this? Right. Yeah. Is the grief at a point? where I truly don't think there's a good day ahead of me. Do I don't, can I still enjoy the breeze next week? Can I still enjoy the way the sun feels? That's where I was. Right. And I think when we're holding, holding grief from death of others, we're going through that same kind of process. We're sitting there and we're thinking, how am I going to ever feel better than this? How am I going to move this weight that's sitting on my chest? How am I going to, continue to function when I feel like someone's been robbed from me. Hmm. Um, I think it's a combination of what we're talking about, both being at rest and being in process of some kind. Like you going to school was absolutely necessary. It's the thing that like held you up and gave you purpose and gave you meaning. And we need that when we're dealing with death and dying. We just also need to, everyone needs this, but men especially need time to actually sit and feel not process, not analyze, feel, have the physical reaction where your body says it's time to be still and it's time to weep. Hmm. It's time to just step into the pain that you're refusing to feel. Yeah. Yeah. I saw this quote that said, when men mourn, they turn inwards. When women mourn, they turn outwards. And that resonated for me. And granted, you know, of course, this isn't an end all this isn't speaking about every man every woman right but uh for me that's exactly what it is i preferred i've always preferred solitude i always get caught up in my mind i I, it's exhausting somebody's i was on a podcast of a homie and he he was talking about he never comments on my poster because he's just like it's just be it'd be so much there and it had me thinking like it must be exhausting to be in your head and i said for sure (laughs) For sure, because I'm always inward. I'm always inside. I'm always thinking about uh, outcomes, hopefully solutions as well. But I'm always inconsistently processing. And it's extremely exhausting. Right. It's extremely exhausting. Uh, and so, but I know when, when I've experienced mourning, when I in in death and in, in dying, when my father died with that, that might have been the healthiest grieving that I've done. I I mourned the loss of somebody with whom I was 
I didn't know, but I had started to get to know and to understand and to accept their how they had to navigate life and the choices and the decisions that they made. So when he died, it was definitely shed few, shed some tears, right? It's, it's not the Jay-Z, Pops died, didn't cry, didn't know him that well. No, I definitely shed some tears. And I allowed my space, my, myself space because I had, I had something to go off of because I saw how I grieved when my brother died. Which at the time, I did the best I could with what I had. But several years later, I had more information. I had more better knowledge of self. And so I took the time. You know what? I'm going to use this this week off from work to grieve. Now, did I go play basketball? I'm sure I did. Did I go to the gym? Did I go do all of these different things? Yeah, but I didn't have to to bombard myself with stressors and, and pressures and be a workaholic to try and, and to try and navigate the loss of such a pivotal figure in my life. And as we go forward, hopefully when I experience more loss and, and more death, because it's inevitable, right? Mm-hmm. They, they coming for you, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like it was death and taxes. Those are the mm-hmm. only two things that you cannot avoid. And so hopefully I've, I've acquired the, the skills to help me navigate this but the main thing is trusting myself can i trust myself in this process can i trust myself that i have the skills needed to navigate all of this there's going to be some days where it's heavier than others do i trust myself in navigating with that and then if i if i if i do have a moment where it's it may not be the healthiest am i going to accept that and forgive myself and show myself love and grace and compassion because that's what's needed when we talk about navigating talking about grieving and navigating grief yeah compassion is <laughs> i feel like that's the theme on this pod lately when we're talking about men <laughs> having to find compassion uh and when you talk about the difference between men and women one being inward and the other being outward i can't help but think that that absolutely has to do with like conditioning right because let's think about outward mourning outward mourning is dramatic oh of course yeah it's loud it's, oh my gosh it's yeah. messy it's it's someone allowing themselves to completely and totally fall apart right you are going completely with the feeling of the moment you are not yeah. controlling you are not executing no you are becoming a mess and you're allowing that mess to fall out of you. I was taught all my life to never be dramatic, to never get messy, to never lose my footing. No, I need to be solid. And I too, like you, I remember in high school, we just had a lot of kids die. There was a couple suicides. There was a terrible car crash. And I remember always being stoic with it. Mm. Just like, doesn't phase me yeah they're gone whatever that's what happens and i gotta think is that stoicism helpful sometimes like do we need that stoicism in our community like can everybody be a mess it's basically what i'm getting at here it's like with grief can everybody be falling apart or do we need people to be in there in the mix that are more steady more grounded mm-hmm. more with the feeling but not letting the feeling dictate instead being with the feeling and moving with it 
You know what I mean? I do. I do. That's a that's an interesting question that you pose before we get to to just some some strategies for for coping with death, dying and in grief. It's interesting. No, we can't have everybody fall apart. It's we have mechanisms in place that stop that. It's called jobs. <laughs> right? It's it's called it it's called employment. Exactly. It's called, it's called capitalism. I think about I worked um, in child welfare and an old head of mine, uh, Ali Mali, God bless the, the dead, an ancestor, he took his life. Unfortunately, he took somebody else's life along with his. And we were at, we had to go back to work. We worked together. He was a supervisor. Everybody knew. And yes, they had people come in to have conversations, to talk about it and to try and process it. But none of us should have been there that next day. Not if we care about one another, not if we care about this process of, of grieving, not if we care about the work that we're doing as as being police adjacent, right? Even if we just cared about the work, something should have said, no, you know what? They're not gonna, folk are not gonna be able to work at optimal levels, especially those with whom he was close to. Right, his also, unit like bringing grief counseling into the space where the person existed. Like, what do we do? We're dancing in their tomb. Like, what? How are we supposed to heal in that space? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think about that often. Um, here in Philadelphia is a school boys Latin, where they've had several of their students as a high school. They've had several of their students die from gun violence, and I know I've gone to the school. And to have conversations and to help these these young brothers process, pro, not, I, it's not even pro, just to uh, provide a safe space to be for them to express themselves. And, but when I think about in that situation, I think about any other space that they may inhabit probably won't be safe enough for them to be able to express themselves in that way. Right. So I, I see the pros of it, but I also see the see the cons. Right. Um, where, OK, in that situation at DHS, yeah, well, that didn't need to take place there. <laughs> right. And, and for what, an hour? Then we go back to work. Yeah. What, what like what are we what are we doing here? This is, needs to be something that's what about the individual who doesn't want to take advantage of it for that moment in time? Oh, I know. Then they have to go and use their there what is it 13 what is it called uh where you get to see a, a therapist 13 free times right mm -hmm. you you got to go and use that because then what'll happen if it takes more than 13 then we need insurance clearance to help you process that to to, to help you navigate that again capitalism and is has fucked up grieving <laughs> right yeah. has fucked up uh death and dying and so but yeah no I, I think you bring up a good point when we talk about some of these spaces and where we attempt to process grief. It shouldn't be right. That shouldn't be the location for that to take place. Yeah. And I just, I'm, I'm just with you on this idea of like how capitalism speeds up the process of grief. Right. Because that is true. Like you might have some things happen and you might get a day, like you'll get some bereavement, but listen, if you're lucky, you'll get bereavement. Excuse if you're me. lucky, you're lucky. Yeah, because it, it has to be what a significant relationship, right? It has to be Correct. you have to be related. There you go. And there's another <laughs> problem, like the hierarchical of 
of needs when it comes to actually being allowed <laughs> to mourn. Oh, I'm sorry, you weren't close enough to them. It wasn't d- direct family, so sorry, you're not getting a day off for that. Yeah, like it's it makes us callous towards death. So not only are we not talking about death, but we're not actually allowing it to exist in its whole form. Hmm. We're just brushing it under the rug. Keep it moving. Yeah. Keep it moving. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it's nasty, man. It's nasty. So when we talk about just strategies for, for helping men, helping brothers cope, my automatic go-to, and we've talked about it, and I and I utilize it often, probably I wish I used it more, was just crying. Just crying. It's I'm. Uh, I watch. I watch a lot of television. Somehow, I have no idea where I get all this television in. But when I'm watching these, I'm watching a lot of these shows, and it's moments where I'm just like the tears just come out, where I just feel right because whether I I can relate personally to what's taking place, um, or it's just something that taps into to my emotional being, which is wasn't always the case. Right, it, but that wasn't always the, the the case with me, where it was just like you shouldn't be crying over this. Now it's no, if if it's gonna come, it's gonna come. If mm. I watch a Wendy's commercial and something happened, and it's just like, damn man, you know, it brings out a tear. That I'm gonna let that come because the what what I don't want to do is to stop myself and then some and then I'm you know I neuter myself from this ability to, to, to cry, to express emotion. So definitely being able to cry and, and feel one's emotions. What about you? What, what's the strategy that-, that I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump on the, the tears train here and just like agree that oh, crying is new for me, right? I was an expert, still can be, at just the second I feel that slight choke in the back of my throat, I shut it down. Mm. I crush it. I eliminate the threat. I just sit there with it long enough that it can't make it all the way up into my heart or wherever the tear comes from. <laughs> uh, and I just shut it down. But I'm thinking now, and probably the first time I really allowed myself to get sneak attacked by tears <laughs> was watching Pose. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The very first yeah. season of Pose. And it was it it that show allowed me to feel in a way and connect to stories and connect to like real human emotion and real human grief in a way that i've never been able to before and then we move it up to today you know i hope i cry like last week sometime soon Hmm. like i hope i have that kind of cathartic release Man, it's human. It's primal even. It is animal that like animals cry when they're like wounded, right? They make noise. We should also make noise. And I think that is a good message to send to men. When you feel those tears coming, let them happen. Yeah. Like let it happen. Let yourself break open a little bit. Let your soul open up. Let those feelings that feel too big to happen. And then you'll realize, oh, wait, that felt kind of good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. For me, it's, it's the the season finale of The Office, which on Comedy Central, it's just like literally like every three weeks because they run through that show often. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here for it every single episode. But Andy says, I, I wish there was a way to know that you're in the good old days before they become the good old days. Mm. 
and it's real, right? It's just like, yo, I've, I've had this experience. Um, and 10 years from now, it's not going to be here anymore. Right. And I wish I was able to be present in that moment to fully understand just how important and valuable it was to to who I am and who I've become, who I've I've grown, who I've grown to be. So. So, yeah, I that's and I think that's a good point to make, because on the other side of death is life. So like living is important, too. Like you want to handle death well be present in your life, be soaking up these relationships. And I think the main thing that you need for that to be possible is you do need to uncork that emotional, like stuff down that you've been working on for years to all the men out there. Like that needs to be uncorked or else you can't get that kind of life. You just can't, you can't love openly, honestly, while being emotionally cut off. You can't without without love i don't know if we feel death we don't feel death in the same way do we exactly exactly and is you know the fact that you brought up uncourt because it goes to to this idea that we know a lot of men uh, when they're experiencing death dying in 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 grief they may turn to alcohol they may Mm -hmm. turn to drugs we know that an increase happens during this period of of bereavement and so the one thing that you don't want to do is say Hey, you're drinking too much, right? You just you you don't want to come at it from from that perspective, right? Like, oh my gosh, you're drinking so much. What you know is because we recognize that hey, somebody just died. They just lost somebody close to them. So if you're going to support somebody, you want to make sure that you that you're not judgmental in your approach, right? Yeah, we can address the alcohol, but but what's most important is understanding the reason behind it. And so addressing, uh, you know, not addressing uh, the response, but the underlying symptom that's causing the response is is super critical. I know for for so many brothers um, who I know personally and I see throughout social media is if somebody that, yo, we're going to go, let's go get a drink in in memory of when my when my homie, one of my, my former closest friends, his dad had died. It was just like, we're going to all get together and we're going to celebrate Mr. Kenny life. We're going to drink. We're going to get fried. Right now, some people may continue on and and further indulge as a result of that. But it's so important to recognize the reasoning behind it, because that's what you're going to ultimately have. If you want to stop that, that, that behavior, you're going to have to address what's happening underneath. Yeah. And grief isn't a one size fits all kind of thing exactly grief is individual grief is personal grief can look like a lot of things it's just i think what we're getting at is it has to look like something it has to exist yeah if you're a man and you're out there and you're in your 30s and you've never experienced you've never allowed yourself to experience grief i can guarantee you that there's a lot of grief sitting in your body yeah. There's just no way you can't make it to 30 without experiencing grief. You just can't. Yeah. Someone's, and then someone died, someone's passed on, you've experienced some kind of tragedy. And if you've never sat in it, you're missing out. Yeah. And as, if, as weird as that sounds, you are, no. you're missing out. Grief is an important experience as a human. And the fact is it's manifested itself some way, somehow. Mm. Now, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, it's something different. So whether you start working more hours, you start looking at your your little more more uh, sensitive, 
right when it comes to to how people are talking to you you're 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 it's a hair trigger on your emotions mm-hmm. and you're you're lashing out at people it's visible because again yeah that that inward hurt that inward pain has to come out some way somehow even if it's you know we you might not see it until later because you might be taking four five six ten years off your life expectancy so it's going to it's going to manifest itself some way or somehow. You just want to do it in a way that's that's ideally as healthy as possible. Yeah, and it's like, I feel like every every pod we're saying a similar thing, which is just that there's something in you that you're feeling that needs to be felt, and your body's going to keep reminding you until you finally feel it. It will show up. It just will. Exactly. Exactly. Well, how can the people reach you? Uh, still only on IG. It's just being absurdity. Uh, but yeah, not not much going on right now. Just looking for a job. Doing Word. pods on Word. the side. Word. <laughs> if, if you in Canada, what part of Canada are you in? Calgary, Alberta? Halifax, that's the, Nova Halifax. Scotia. Okay. Well, I still only acknowledge Calgary, Alberta, because that's where Bret Hart and Owen Hart and the Hart Foundation are from. That's the that's the only one that I know of. And I think Drake is from All the like... respect to the Hart. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. And as always, you can catch me, Phil underscore Roundtree, across all social media. I'm going to try and point what side is the little subscribe button on. You can't. It's, it's on Mike's side. So hit the subscribe button, like, comment. They get spicy in the YouTube comments. They get spicy over there. I pre- but I appreciate it, though, because I'm going to go back full blown. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm going to return the energy. But as always, I definitely appreciate you, Mike, coming through. I appreciate, appreciate y'all who too. are tuned in. Until next week, peace.